Um, but yeah, awesome. Let's jump in. So uh, today, as I was praying for the message, and I was like, Lord, you know, this this is it's a, a season of transition, and a lot of people are transitioning, going going uh, back home. You know, some people are transitioning with jobs. Some people are you know leaving Lynchburg permanently. That I, I've talked to, and I was like, Jesus, I, I want to like to like deposit something in our body that it really needs. You know, like I, I don't want to just preach on something to preach on something. I think that's a waste of time. <laughs> Like, I'm just going to preach this thing because it's a cool theological fact and, like, this is awesome. But I, I want to preach every single time I come something that's actually going to lead to transformation. And as I was praying, like, Lord, what does our body need? And uh, that's all I'm going to give you so far. That's what we're going to dive into. Uh, but if I was to give every single person in the room a whiteboard, okay, and an expo marker, and I was to say, hey, everyone write down your biggest struggle right now. And everyone wants to hold it up, right? Whether it's busyness or addiction or shame or guilt or stress or worry or fear or anxiety. If everyone was to raise up their board, uh, which we're about to do, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> there would be one linear theme. There would be one linear theme. And what that would be is restlessness. That because of anxiety, there's restlessness. Because of addiction, there's restlessness. Because of this constant cycle of shame, there's restlessness. And I want to tackle this thing head on. Because the beautiful thing about preaching, I don't know if you guys know this, but preaching dictates the culture of the church. So when we preach, what we release to our body dictates the culture, right? If you go into a church and the preaching is one way, that's going to be what's going to dictate the culture of the church. And so what we're going into today, I want it to permeate every single person that calls this place home. Because when we look at just the world, and, and when we look at the church, we look at our friends, we look at us, we look around us, I, I see this thing of restlessness. It's just this continuous, this is continuous thorn in our flesh, right? That more and more people are getting burnt out. And it's almost like this cool thing, right? It's like, yeah, man, I like work like 10 hours today and like I'm burnt out. <laughs> or like, yeah, I'm doing, doing so much. I have like 50 things on my plate. I'm just like so exhausted. And, and it's like this thing that's become so normal. But I think when we look at the life of Jesus, which is our measuring stick, by the way, and we look at Jesus and say, is this normal for Jesus? And if it's not, then it shouldn't be normal for us. So we'll get that later. Because did Jesus model stress to us? No. Did Jesus model anxiety to us? No. Did Jesus model restlessness to us? Come on. And this is what it means to be a Christian. I don't know if you knew this. But to be a Christian doesn't mean that you follow a bunch of rules. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you just don't do bad things. Being a Christian means you become like Christ. If the cross was just to make you a good person, then what's the point? Read a self-help book. The point of being a Christian is to become like Christ. And so this is the thing, church. I want us to see we are meant and created and purchased to be set apart. Stay set apart. Who knows that your toothbrush is set apart? You don't use your toothbrush to brush your cat. 
You don't use your toothbrush to clean your shoes. You don't use your toothbrush to clean the toilet. Because your toothbrush is set apart for one purpose, and that's to clean your teeth. So the same thing as a Christian, our lives are set apart for one purpose, it's to look like Jesus. And this is the thing, guys. Being set apart doesn't mean you have your Christian clique, and you only do Christian things, and you have your Christian bubble, and that's all you do. But to be set apart is to become like Christ, that when the world looks at you, they're like, what is wrong with them? They have so much on their plate, but they're so rested. What is wrong with them? They've experienced so much pain in their life, but they love so well. They're a parent of five kids, but they have so much peace. Come on. That's what it means to be so important. So do we actually believe that, that we're so important? Do we actually believe we have the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? If not, then guys, what's the disconnect? Why is burnout like a normal thing? Why is restlessness the common denominator in all of our struggles? You know, I was uh, looking and researching statistics about pastors, and I, I was, the Holy Spirit led me to it. And what I found was shocking. And obviously, you know, statistics, there's biases, and you know, the only interview some certain people, and you can't know 100% how accurate it is. But I think with what I found, I, I see the weight of this. It said this, that 90% of pastors in America feel fatigued and worn out every week. 77% feel they do not have a good marriage. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 70% constantly fight depression. 50% feel so discouraged from ministry that they would quit if they could, but they can't find another job. 50% admit to using pornography. 38% are divorced or divorcing. Guys, that is not normal. That should not be normal. And when I read this, I, I like, I felt the weight of my call. I was like, wow. Like, I, I, I understand. This is, a, this is a hard calling. But this should not be the normal. This is pastors. This is the people who are leading the church. So how much more, because preaching pastor dictates the culture, how much more is the church under this? And what I want you guys to see is that hearing all of this, we have to be missing something. Like there has to be a disconnect. Because like I said, what Jesus doesn't say normal, we shouldn't say uh, uh, is normal. Just because something seems like it's normal for us, yeah, everyone's getting burned out. Yeah, everyone's busy. Yeah, everybody's stressed out. It's just, you know, it's 2022. We should not call something normal that Jesus doesn't call him. And we need to get that. Why? Because we're set apart. Not because we're better, not because we're perfect, but because we have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So down the road of following Jesus, I believe we've lost something. We've lost a big part of our redemption. I believe that we've lost our inheritance. So what I want to preach on this morning is the lost inheritance. Say the lost inheritance. Lost inheritance. If you know what an inheritance is, an inheritance is the portion of possessions that's transferred to an heir upon the owner's death. It's almost this thing of, you know, someone works their entire life 
plowing and attaining possession and wealth because of their hard work. And upon their death, it is freely given to an heir or a son or a daughter. And that heir receives freely all of their possession, all of their wealth, simply because they're related to them. Because of their death. And who knows that spiritually, Jesus gave you an inheritance through his death. And we've touched on this the past few weeks, right? Who is here for our Easter mini-series? Raise your hand. Well, we, we've talked about that. We are joined to, to Christ. So what that means is that in his death, as Paul says, that we have been put to death with him. Our old nature was put to death with him. That we were crucified with Christ. That's really good news. That through Jesus' death, we've received freedom from sin. We've been given a new covenant with God through his resurrection. We've been given access to his presence. Come on. We've been given a new nature. We've been given eternal life. This is a lot of really good things. But what are we missing? All right, let's go to Luke chapter 15. Verse 12 to 30. You guys all right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Getting, getting hot up here. It's getting heated. All right, Luke 15, verse 12. Uh, this is the story of the prodigal son, which uh, a lot of us know who's read the story of the prodigal son. All right, good job. You guys read your Bibles. Luke 15. And in this passage, the context, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees are coming up to him. They're saying, Jesus, we don't like how you're handling with sinners. Why are you hanging out with sinners? And in this, this story, he reveals God's heart for sinners. But then at the end of the story, he confronts their heart. So let's go into this. Verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. If you're taking notes, underline that sentence. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. We'll get back to that. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. That he is practicing his speech. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father completely just ignores Talk to his servant and says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get him a ring for his fingers, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and now he's found. So the party began. Who knows heaven is going to be one big party. 
Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. You know, you guys can dance in church. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back. He was told, and your father has killed a fat calf. And we're celebrating because of his safe return. Verse 28, this is the whole point that I want to get to. The older brother was angry. And he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved. If you're taking notes, underline that word, slaved. For you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fat calf. Verse 31, we're end here. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me in everything. Say everything. Everything, everything I have is. Come on, soak in that. What is interesting about this story that a lot of us miss in verse 12 when it says, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. At the beginning, both sons were given their inheritance. It wasn't just a prodigal. Both sons were given their inheritance. What's even more interesting, in Jewish culture, the firstborn would get a double portion. So the first, firstborn, which was the older brother, actually got more of an inheritance than the other brother, and he got it at the same time. I find that interesting. But the interesting thing is both of them lost it. Both of them lost their inheritance. But who knows that you can do a lot of good things for God. But if it is not done in love, it's done in strife. You can say, God, I didn't do all those bad things. And I've done everything you've told me to do. But if none of it was done in love, it's done in striving. God, I raised my hands and I sang really loud at church. But if it wasn't done in love, it's done in striving. And who knows that striving starts in the heart before it starts in the hands. That it's a heart thing. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees' hearts. He's calling them the older brother. They're like, you know the law more than all these people. You have a greater inheritance than everyone else, but you're wasting it. The older brother was slaving. I thought that was interesting. He said, Father, I was slaving for you all these years. That he was slaving for an inheritance that was already his to begin with. He literally, this is the disconnect, guys. God calls us sons, but we act like slaves. We're like, okay, I gotta do all of these things for God and then He will bless me. God, if I don't do all these good things, then you won't bless me. Then you'll separate yourself. Then you shame me. This is how we act. We act like the older brother. I think more than the younger brother. But this is the powerful thing that the Father says, verse 31. He says, everything I have has been yours. The disconnect is that you're acting like a slave, not like a son. 
The disconnect is that as people, we're not living for inheritance, but we're living in light of it. We're not living to attain it, but we're living from the place of already been given it. And so when we talk about the lost inheritance, which we haven't even gone to, this is the thing that I want us to understand. If you are a believer, you already have it. Striving comes when we try to attain something from God that is already ours. God, like if I just feel far from God. I feel like God is far away. I missed my Bible reading plan today. God, far away. I share this in first service. There's a season in my life where I was studying the word and every single day I was reading and I was writing uh, uh, just, just commentary and I was studying. And I remember what would happen. There would be days where I would miss a day. And what I would do because I felt bad, the next day I would double up and do two days. And while my heart sounded good, while my actions sorry, sounded good, my heart was striving. It's this thing where it's like, man, I feel like I have to add something to the relationship. I have to bring something to the relationship. Then I'm going to be spiritual. Then I'm going to be like all those other super Christians in the room. That's not how that works. I think what is also significant is the prodigal when he came back, right? He squandered. He wasted every penny. He had nothing. He was given this large inheritance. He wasted everything. But what I find so interesting, guys, is when he comes back, he's practicing his repentance speech. Father cuts him off. His repentance isn't the speech, it's the action. He returned, that was the repentance. And his response was this. Give him a ring, give him a robe, give him sandals, kill the fattest cow in the, in the flock, and we're going to celebrate. Why? He wasted his inheritance. Why? Because his inheritance isn't based on him and what he does, but it's based on the Father's richness. That's a word right there. Because your inheritance isn't based on what you do or what you don't do, but it's based on the richness of your father. All right, you ready for what the inheritance is? I don't think you're ready. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go there. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. Is this helping anybody? Yeah, yeah. All right. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, it says this. But God is so rich. Say so rich. So rich. Come on. You've got a rich father. For God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. I'm going to get saved all over again. That's so good. Well, this is what happens, guys, as we stop there. We're like, yes! He raised us from the dead. Saved by grace through faith. And then we go along our path. This is the lost inheritance, verse 6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and did what? Seated us. Say seated. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. The lost inheritance is the chair. Wow. 
So you've been given a chair. And this is such a profound revelation. And this is the, the, the antidote to striving, is that you have a chair. And in this chair, right, we're seated in heavenly places. It may not be literally, but it's legally. Legally, you are seated in heavenly places because you are joined with Christ and you're co-heirs with him. And because of that, legally, everything that is Jesus is yours. Everything that is Jesus is yours. Why? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Guys, what would it look like to live from being seated? That means rest. That means that you live from rest. Right? We say, Jesus, I want to be where you're at. Do you know where Jesus is at? He's seated. Is Jesus stressed out walking around the throne and said, man, Andrew didn't finish his Bible reading plan today. <laughs> is Jesus pacing around the throne of like, man, you didn't, you know, you missed your chance. You could have given that prophetic word. If you want to be where Jesus is at, then you have to be seated. Because when you're seated, you get his perspective. And this is the thing that I want us to see, guys, because when you're seated, you do not have to strive anymore. That's the beautiful thing about the chair, is that when you are seated, striving doesn't exist anymore. Guys, what would it look like? Stick with me. What would it look like if you lived a life where you didn't have to strive to please God? No amens for that one. What would it look like? Like, like self-reflect. Come on, stay with me. What would it look like if you actually lived your life, came to church, did relationship, read scripture, as if you don't have to please God? What if you lived your life like you didn't have to please people? Oh. Do you know how much easier your life would be? That you wouldn't have to spend an hour figuring out your outfit. Come on. So much time saved right there. That what would it look like if you don't have to strive to be holy? You don't have to strive to be near to God. You don't have to strive to be forgiven. Why? Because you're seated. And what does it say? We're seated with Him. Do you know where He's seated? The right hand of the Father. Do you know what's at the right hand of the Father? Pleasures forevermore. So in the creation account, guys, God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because the work has been complete. And what is so unique in the creation story is that Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, which means that humanity had no part in the creation account. God wasn't like, hey, Adam, go pick that boulder and throw it in the air and make a mountain. He didn't do that. So what this means is that God's last day is man's first full day. That where God finished, we start. Did you know that you actually start from rest, not for rest? You actually live from rest, not live for rest. And this is the problem, because this is the culture we live in. Man, I just got to get to Saturday, and then I'll be rested. Just got to just get till the evening, then I'll be rested. 
But what I find so unique in Jewish culture, the Sabbath, right, Shabbat, was this, we'll get into this, I'm not going to spoil anything, but what Shabbat is, it's this complete day to cease from their work, and Sabbath was the first day of the Jewish week. They started their day by resting. They started their week by resting. This is the spiritual paradigm that we have inherited as believers. Guys, what would it look like for us to create, to work, and to minister from the place of being seated? To parent from the place of being seated? From having a relationship from the place of being seated? I'm looking in the mirror and seeing yourself from the place of being seated. That he is seated because the work has been complete. What that means is there's nothing you have to add to the equation. There's nothing that you have to bring to make you earn your seat at the table. That's the good news. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, let's go there a little bit. We know this, this verse, I'm just gonna go through really quick because of time. So then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are wearing heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Guys, this is the beautiful thing, is that he doesn't only give us eternal rest, he gives us internal rest. That God doesn't need your striving. He doesn't need you to act super spiritual. He doesn't be super spiritual. He doesn't need you to be perfect. Why? Because everything that he has is yours. You have an inheritance. And when you actually live, not from a, mind, not from a mindset of poverty, but a mindset of abundance that says, everything that the Father is is mine. I don't have to be insecure anymore. I don't have to spend an hour fixing my hair and being stressed out because I think I look ugly. This is real. What's so beautiful, guys, and I want to give this analogy to, to simplify this. Grace is the chair. Salvation is the chair. Faith is sitting. Grace said, I'm going to give you legally everything that is mine by ruling next to me, sitting in this chair. And when you sit at this chair, you don't have to strive anymore. You get to live from rest and live from abundance that you have pleasures forevermore at my right hand when you sit in this chair. Faith is sitting. And here's the thing. God doesn't play musical chairs. He's not like, okay, do, 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 do. But oh. <laughs> even if you get out of the chair, this chair is still there. The chair is not taken away. This is why scripture says, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Do you know that you are the righteousness of Christ? That he who knew no sin became sin, so that you would become the righteousness of Christ. That the righteous shall live by faith. Do you know that you live by sitting? Faith is what keeps you there. Do you know what the word faith literally means? It means to put all of your weight on something. Right now, as you're sitting, you're putting your faith in your chair. You're not like, oh, I'm worried the leg's going to break. Hey, these are some nice chairs. Look them up. Expensive. 
faith is saying, I'm going to sin. Because do you know that God can do more in your sitting than he can do in your striving? God can do more in your resting than you can do in your striving. Because when we are dependent, right, the whole point of faith, faith is dependency. You're putting all of your weight on something and saying, I'm putting my complete dependence on this thing, which is salvation, which is grace, which is what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we live independent from God, we say, I got it. I can be holy. I'm doing a program. And we live in this way, guys, we're, we're trying to be a Christian, but who knows the point of being a Christian is to become like Jesus. And apart from him, you can't do anything. So rest means to live in dependency in the person and the work of Jesus. That's good. Well, I love Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus says, take upon my yoke. And what a yoke is, right? You guys know the picture. It's two oxen. They have this bar that goes on their, sh on their shoulders. And they are joined together to plow the field. Jesus says, when you put on my yoke, when you're equally yoked with me, when you put on this tool that joins us, the tool is the chair, when you are joined with me, look at how much we can do. And the beautiful thing is the burden is light and the, the yoke is easy because he carries all the load. All you got to do is sit. All you got to do is be dependent. All you got to do is have faith. All you have to do is trust. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Or you were saved by grace through faith. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Uh-oh. Changes some people's theology. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can Faith is a decision to stay in chair. That rest means to live a life of dependency in the person and the work of Jesus. I'm going to close and the worship team can come up. Let's go to Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. I just want to hit this thing on the head. Hebrews 4, 9 11 says this. So there is a special rest, a special rest, still waiting for the people of God. What? There's a special rest that is still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their what? Labors. Just as God did after creating the, the world to let us do our best to enter that rest, but if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. If you get out of the chair, just as the people of Israel did, we will fall. And here's the thing, that in Hebrews, it is uh, paralleling the story of uh, the promised land. Uh, if you know the story of the promised land in uh, Genesis and Exodus, all, all, all of this, it's, it's Abraham is given this land called the land of Canaan. And this land was supposed to be an inheritance for his ancestors. 
This is where God's people were going to live. It was almost going to be a redemption of the garden. That this is a promise that's overflowing with milk and honey. But what happened is the people of God kept disobeying, so they kept going in and out of exile. And finally they landed in Egypt where they were enslaved for generations by Pharaoh. And their kids' kids, all they knew was to be a slave. All they knew was to work. Do you know that they didn't get any days off? And so Moses comes and God tells Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land, into this special place of rest. And we know the story, right? It took them decades to enter the promised land, which should have only taken, taken them two weeks. It took them decades. Why? Because they didn't know how to depend on God. Because all they knew how to do was to be a slave. All they knew how to do was, I have to work to get my food. I have to work to not get hurt. All they knew in their heart was how to be a slave. And this is why it's so profound when God instituted the Sabbath. John Mark Comer says the Sabbath was given to the people of Israel as an act of rebellion. To rebel against their old nature. And saying, you don't live for rest. You live from rest. Your day starts from ceasing from your labors and trusting that I can do more in your resting and your trusting than your striving and your working. Guys, when we realize this inheritance, we won't have to, to live from striving. That the older brother was just as lost as the prodigal. Because externally, he seemed to be working and doing everything that was assumed of him. Yet internally, he forgot he was living in his inheritance, not living for it. That everything around him was his. That is good. Like I said at the beginning, I want this to permeate in the culture of breakthrough. That we're not a church that has to strive. We're not a church that has to perform. We're not a church that has to be perfect. But we are a church that's going to live from the chair. That's going to live from being seated. That's going to live not from a poverty mindset or from a, a, a slave mindset, but we're going to live as a son and as a daughter that says, my father has provided everything that I need for life and godliness. Come on. So we're going to take communion.